Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Monday. Well, big news, as you've been hearing about throughout the day, we are saying goodbye to some of the restrictions and rules that were brought in as part of the fight against COVID-19. Vancouver's International Airport is welcoming today's announcement from the federal government that all remaining COVID-19 measures for air travel will be lifted on Saturday. Earlier today on Mornings with Simi, we heard from Mike McNaney, VP and Chief External Affairs Officer at YVR, reminding people that anyone who wants to still wear a mask should absolutely do so. If someone is more comfortable traveling with masks, by all means, continue to wear masks, both passengers and certainly our employees here. We're giving that same message. But you'll see the removal of the mask mandate. The other piece to it then will be travelers will not need to have the, <laughs> the, the totality of information that they have had to have in the past about their vaccination status and submitting all that information electronically, both uh, to their air carrier and to the federal government. So all those measures go away, and we are certainly anticipating that it's going to make for a, a much smoother and overall enjoyable travel experience. Well, let's bring in Morgan Bell, is the WestJet Manager of Media and Public Reaction. Morgan, thank you so much for being with us today. No, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what's your response that as of Saturday we will see these restrictions lifted? You know, I heard uh, Mike's comments there just before I came on air, and, and ours from WestJets are very uh, similar. Our, our CEO this morning, Alexis von Hollenbrush, uh, put out a statement on, on travel restrictions, and, and we are uh, welcoming them with open arms. It's been a long-awaited uh, announcement uh, for our industry and our airlines, so by all means, uh, we're very happy to see them today. Are you seeing an increase then in people or do you anticipate there will be a big bump in the number of people who will be booking travel? I think most of the bookings uh, have already happened, uh, but ultimately this is a window into just kind of unlocking that additional recovery that our industry really needs. I mean, ultimately, we've been hearing from our guests that uh, they want that certainty. They want to book with confidence. They want to make sure that they know that they can travel uh, to a sunny destination and not have to worry about anything when they come home. So that means uh, it's not completely quantifiable right now, but we certainly expect that uh, this will be welcome news by many so they know that their travel won't be interrupted. And for people who have been waiting for this, particularly the mask mandates to be lifted, and even if it's people maybe that have been traveling elsewhere where it's already been lifted, how will it work then as far as, is there still going to be, I know there has to be a date set for things, but is there still going to be enforcement leading up until Saturday when the mandate is lifted? I mean, that is uh, that is the government's regulation. I mean, the, the mandate is in, in effect until uh, October 1st, 2022, uh, so, by all means, we do uh, we do ask that guests have uh, have respect for those regulations, and uh, guests as of October first are free to wear a mask or to not wear a mask. Similar to our our employees on our aircraft, they also will continue to have that option. Um, it just becomes an option and a choice, which is something that we were looking for was for that to align with all other consumer activities in Canada. And this might be getting too much into the details, but I'm just curious because I I have already been asked this once today. When we've seen things changed in the past, specifically specifically when it comes to borders and travel, oftentimes it's Eastern time that it kicks in. And I know there will be people that will be traveling on the day. Do you know, is it October 1st, wherever you are in that time zone or in Canada, is it October 1st or is it midnight that day, which would be 9 p.m. here? I don't want to misspeak, so I would refer anybody that has 
specific questions back to the federal government's uh, own language on it. But we do uh, see it as as midnight across the board. But that would be midnight uh, on October. Sorry. So that would be uh, September 30th. As soon as the clock strikes uh, midnight on October 1st, that would be the time. Okay, good to know. Um, Do you anticipate as well, I know there have been some issues with staffing at airports and problems with security lines and that. Do you anticipate if we are seeing those bookings or more people comfortable traveling, have those issues been dealt with, do you think? Over the majority of the summer, absolutely. There were certainly challenges that we felt across the industry and and WestJet wasn't immune to that. So anybody listening that... uh, certainly traveled with us and uh, and had troubles during the summer. Uh, we recognize that, that that wasn't the WestJet that they expect, and uh, we worked hard uh, with our partners, be it in the airports, with baggage, be it with the federal government at uh, security and um, border screenings, and our airport partners like YVR. Everybody's done an incredible job, and we've actually been publishing our operational stats uh, very transparently for the last uh, almost two months. And we've seen a tremendous improvement. Uh, We're almost back to pre-pandemic levels across the board. So uh, fall is typically a little bit quieter. And so uh, Thanksgiving weekend will be busy. But ultimately, we feel that we're in a really good place and that uh, people can travel with that that confidence. But by all means, everybody should still uh, always plan for a little bit of extra time and arrive to the airport early because lots of people haven't traveled um, in the last little bit. So it might be a new experience for them nonetheless. Right. Good to always have that extra time so you're not super, super stressed out. Um, what about the making of ArriveCan optional now? And I know the federal minister uh, mentioned that as far as expediting through airports, that can still be helpful for people if they want to do that. As far as obviously your, your vaccination information is no longer going to be required, but even for documentation or going through customs, what are your thoughts or, or what will this change anything making ArriveCan optional? I, I think technology enhancements are always um, always welcome news in our industry. I mean, we're we're constantly rolling them out. So, um, if that's to be a program that uh, that is going to be beneficial long term, then uh, we'll see we'll see the adoption of it, and obviously encourage Canadians to use any uh, hands free uh, mode available to go through customs and border if it makes it faster. But ultimately, I think uh, I think what we've really learned is that we don't want to. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past based on uh, what we've learned uh, over the last two and a half years and that uh, today is just a really good step forward for the industry. And as we move forward, we hope that, um, you know, in the unlikely event that something like this uh, does happen again, that uh, we're well prepared to deal with it and that ultimately travel doesn't have its own rules and regulations outside of what uh, the traveling public does in their day-to-day life. And Morgan, just one other question, and this has to do with, I suppose, masking and, and being on, on planes. Uh, I, I know that in some cases, these rules and this pandemic, they've brought out the best in people. They've also brought out the worst in people in some cases. And I know uh, air travel staff uh, have have been on the receiving end of that from time to time, unfortunately. Are there any concerns that once the mask mandate is lifted, there will still be people that wear masks? And absolutely, that that's as we've been hearing if your choice is to wear a mask and and if you want to wear a mask that's fine are there any concerns about a difference of opinions perhaps or if air worker or air employees choose to wear masks that people uh, some people might not like that or or might speak out against that 
I think we just have to go back to pre-pandemic. I mean, there was plenty of people that did wear masks on airplanes, and it was never uh, it was never an issue. It was just something that wasn't as common. So, uh, by all means, now uh, we certainly hope that there is uh, absolutely no concern with people making that choice for themselves. I mean, what we do know is that air travel has proven itself to be incredibly safe among consumer activities in Canada, and. Uh, the demand, the, the man, while the mandate is removed, it's certainly optional and it's encouraged if, if guests or our employees want to wear um, masks when they travel, uh, just like they do when they go to the grocery store or the Vancouver Canucks game, that's totally okay. So by all means, we, we really hope that uh, we're optimistic that that isn't an issue, but uh, certainly our crew have been through a lot uh, over the last two and a half years and they've done an incredible job on the front line. So um, we just ask for everybody's patience and respect with those people and their and their fellow people, their fellow uh, citizens that they're traveling next to, because everybody has a different level of comfort of safety when they're returning to travel or returning to day to day activities. Morgan Bell, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having us on. Well, some exclusive details are being learned and released about the stabbing rampage in Saskatchewan. I lost my husband and and my dad too. The widow of one of the suspects of the James Smith Cree Nation stabbings, Sky Sanderson, wife of Damien Sanderson, is now fighting to clear her husband's name and for accountability. Sky Sanderson says she reported her husband and his brother, the other suspect, Miles Sanderson, to police 24 hours before the stabbings took place. They felt me. They, I tried to save my husband. Like I knew, I knew that wasn't my husband. I knew that Miles was feeding my husband something that I don't know of. The cost of RCMP inaction, Sky says, 18 people injured, 10 dead. In her only interview since the stabbings, Sky told Global News' Ashley Stewart her husband didn't kill anyone. On the Monday after the attack, RCMP charged Damien with one count of first-degree murder. The same day they charged him, they found his body. As you heard in that report, Ashley Stewart is the Global News reporter who interviewed the widow. And she joins us now to talk more about this story. Ashley, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, you spoke with the uh, stabbing suspect's wife, Sky, as we heard in that report. Can you talk a little bit more about what else Sky said during that interview? Yeah, I mean, me and Sky, we've, we've stayed in touch for the last three weeks. She's obviously been very uh, nervous to uh, share her story for the first time, but. I think with the the media narrative the way it was, with Damien being portrayed as a as a suspect rather than a victim, as she thinks that he should be seen, she was she was very clean, keen to clear his name. So she spoke of the fact that Damien, uh, Miles and Damien never really had a relationship. That Miles had started coming back down to the reserve over the last couple of months after he was reserved uh, released from prison. Um, and she said that Damien was, was scared of Miles and that they had a very um, damaged relationship. So Miles was feeding Damien drugs. He was very persuasive, trying to get in between his family. And it, at the end of the day, Damien um, kind of bought into that at the end. And Miles was able to persuade, kind of feed him drugs and alcohol. And that's kind of how the, how the murders began. 
And when we look back also at the, one of the, the things that she said to you was the fact that she had called the RCMP 24 hours before these murders took place. How does she describe how that call was received and what, if any, action was taken? Well, I think this is a really key point um, in the entire thing because Sky is basically saying if the RCMP had taken this call seriously 24 hours earlier, then we would have avoided all of these murders and we would have avoided 18 people being injured. Um, so, I mean, she said that she called, she knew Damien and Miles were up to no good. They were driving around the community. They were harassing people, harassing her family. She said the RCMP showed up, but they didn't take her concerns seriously. They went into a house um, and asked around where Damien was. Uh, Damien was inside and apparently gave them a, a fake name and, and they didn't try any harder to um, locate Miles or arrest them both. They both had outstanding uh, warrants for their arrest at the time. And which we had heard that before as well, that Miles Sanderson, who was the suspect who who died after being taken into police custody, that it had been more than 100 days that he had been named as or he had been wanted as uh, there was a a warrant out for his arrest, arrest, which I think even hearing that in the beginning, people were uh, kind of wondering. People obviously knew that he where he was and had seen him. And even in that case. So here we are 24 hours before this happened. She calls police to say this is happening, and one of the people she's talking about is somebody who's wanted on a Canada-wide warrant, yet still nothing was done. Exactly, and I mean, these two were, I mean, they both had outstanding warrants. Damien had two um, warrants for his arrest for assault as well, and they were hiding in plain sight. It's not like these guys were on the run or in hiding. Miles was apparently living in Saskatoon and frequently coming uh, coming down to James Smith. Um, and Damien was just living at James Smith with his wife. It wouldn't have taken uh, very much effort at all for them to be located. All you needed to do was visit their home addresses. Uh, she talked to you as well. Sky Sanderson talked to you as well about, and you and you, you talked about this uh, kind of un- being under the influence of his brother and and what his brother's role was in this. Uh, she's also, it seems, speaking out and wanting to speak out, saying that she doesn't believe her husband was a suspect. She believes that her husband was the victim. Exactly, and I think it's it's, it's very easy to um, just take Sky's word for that and. Um, perhaps think that she's kind of trying to pass on responsibility or accountability for her husband, but I spoke with dozens and dozens of people um, at James Smith Cree Nation, and they all said the same thing. They said that Miles had a very troubled upbringing, and he was violent. He was known as a dangerous guy, but Damien was not like that. Like, I mean, the chief even said he wasn't a threat. He was a nice guy. He was a family man. He had a lot of friends around, so they all knew him as, like, a passionate band member. So I I wouldn't go as far as to say it was out of character, but I think it was very unexpected. Right. Even though, like you say, he did have warrants out for assault. It's not as though he was an angel in the community. There were obviously some issues there, but maybe not to the extent it's being portrayed. Exactly. I mean, he had, he did have a, uh, a criminal record. He had Guy spoke openly about this as well, though. I mean, she said that he was violent towards her. They both had substance abuse issues. They both used cocaine. They both drank too much. But I think there is a large difference between that and the atrocities that we saw committed on September the 4th.
Uh, when you talk to, to Sky as well, and you mentioned that you've talked to dozens of other people in the community, how is the community dealing with this and, and, and doing in the aftermath of this? I mean, I think it's a really long road, you know, like to say that they are grieving is quite an understatement. I mean, the whole, it's a very small community. There's 1,900 people that live at James Smith Cree Nation. Everyone knows someone that was killed or injured. So if there is, it's not like the six degrees of separation situation. It's like it hits very close to home for absolutely everyone. So to have to also then go to 10 funerals over the space of a couple of days while still being worried about people in hospital. Like it's taken a massive toll on just about everyone there. You, you talk to anyone and they say, yeah, my uncle, yeah, my, my grandfather was killed. But it's amazing. I mean, they're probably getting sick of being called resilient because they just want something done. But they are incredibly resilient people. And with this new information, at least information that we are learning through your interview with Sky Sanderson, is there any thought or hope, do you think, that the probe that will be done now, the investigation into what unfolded and how things unfolded, that there will be answers? That's a very good question. I, I just, I, I don't know. And the issue, I think, for a lot of uh, the people that are affected is that this this inquest is, is quite a long way away. So, I mean, for Skye, having everyone think that her husband is a monster, having her children being told by everyone around them that her husband is a monster, it's it's too long to wait for accountability. And the Saskatchewan RCMP have so far been very, very reluctant to answer questions. I mean, on this one particular point um, itself, we gave them over a week to respond, and they chose not to. So... I, I, I just think it's too long to wait to, to understand exactly what happened here. Right. So when you put that question to the RCMP or tried to put that question to the RCMP, here is someone saying she called police 24 hours beforehand, alerted them to two people who were had outstanding warrants. One of them was a Canada-wide warrant, alerted them to this, and nothing was done. Uh, trying to get answers or clarification of that. Have you been able to get anything? Absolutely nothing. I mean, I... I spoke to the RCMP very briefly um, across the week trying to get answers and was promised answers every day and then they just never came through and then on after deadline on uh, I think very late on Friday night they sent a response that basically said they couldn't respond because of the ongoing investigations. All right. Well, we will certainly uh, be waiting to see or hoping for uh, some more answers on this. Ashley Stewart, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this exclusive story. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Well, it has been a while since we've been talking about the issues when it came to job action at distribution centers in B.C. We saw some private liquor stores as well as the B.C. government liquor stores having difficulties with shelves, a lot of empty shelves in some places. However, with the news of an agreement reached, we just assumed everything would go back to business as usual. Well, that's not the case for some private liquor stores. And joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Jeff Guinard, the executive director of able bc that's bc's alliance of beverage licensees jeff thanks so much for being with us again good afternoon what is happening then as far as private liquor stores and getting back to restocking and back to pre-job action 
Yeah, we are still experiencing the ongoing impacts of that strike. One of the reasons we were so vocal so early about the need to you know, get Beverly back to the table and get a tentative deal in place was those 15 days that they were on strike has caused about a month's worth of disruptions. So we're still probably a week or two away from getting back to normal. And I'm sure listeners have noticed, if you go to a private liquor store or even a government store, there are still some holes on shelves and spirits or some refreshment products like gin sodas and vodka sodas. And the restrictions that, you know, pubs and bars and restaurants were under for purchasing, they can only get three bottles at a time. That's just still in place. So we are still probably a couple of weeks away from dealing with this. And it's uh, it's been pretty frustrating. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was at a government liquor store on Friday. And mm-hmm. the same thing, exactly what you mentioned. I saw all the signs were still up on the, the three bottles limit and that. And I thought, oh, yeah. I, at first I just saw one and thought they must have forgotten to take that down. But then as I got into the store, it was quite clear there were holes in the shelves and the requirements were still or the restrictions were still there. And I thought, oh, that's odd because I think me, like a, a lot of other people, we just thought everything was back to normal. Yeah, and it doesn't get back to normal overnight. I mean, I would say if when the strike ended on that, that you know, when they, when they went back to work the next day, they had about 750,000 cases to pick and ship. And we were already about 10 or 15 days behind at that point because most stores will get, you know, one, two, three deliveries a week. We went two and a half weeks without getting any. Right. So it got to this, this point now where, you know, the LDB, the liquor distribution branch, folks who are delivering this for us, they're just showing up whenever they can, doing as fast as they can to get the products back on shelves. One of the problems for the restaurants and pubs and bars out there is because they have to buy products from government liquor stores, we have to wait until government liquor stores are restocked as well so the hospitality can get the quantities they need. So it's, it's quite challenging. And I, I will say at the end of the day, what this has really done, I think, is put a spotlight on some fundamental inefficiencies in the liquor distribution system in British Columbia. And we're speaking to government right now about how we can fix that so we don't have a problem like this again. Right. And this might be an oversimplified question, but you, you raise that point. So it's a two-step process in that mm-hmm. the stores have to stock up or the distribution centers have to stock up. And then the stock is then passed on to either the restaurants and pubs or, or the liquor stores. That's right. But could it not be, I think, isn't it done elsewhere as well, or even I'm thinking in Ontario, technically it goes through distribution, but it also in in a lot of cases goes straight to the venue and, and you kind of pay the fee and it doesn't actually physically go to the different places. But is it like that here? Uh, it depends. So but the challenge when, when those four warehouses were shut down is they supply about half of the alcohol in the province. And they're the only source for certain products like imported spirits, or, you know, ready-to-drink products, you know, um, like canned cocktails and gin sodas and whatnot. You're allowed to get, you know, wine and beer distributed, particularly from um, like a BC craft brewery or a BC winery. That could be distributed directly. So that that's what's on shelves right now. And beer has a bit of a different distribution system. But the shortages you're seeing are the from the products that we you have to source from those warehouses. So if we had to get everything from those warehouses, we would have been in even more trouble. <laughs> All right, so luckily that didn't happen. But, you know, people are asking some pretty simple questions like we've got those gin sodas and vodka sodas manufactured at a craft distillery or a craft you know, brewery in BC, right beside or down the street from a liquor store, and we have to send those products to the Delta Distribution Center or the Camelot Distribution Center and then order them and ship them there when they could just walk them down the street. So things like that need to get sorted out in the long term. And do you think it will change? I mean, I would, I'm sure if you asked any member of the union that was taking part in job action, their response would be, well, that's why we had leverage and that's why we were able to do this and get a better deal. Whereas if you asked pub owners and restaurant owners, they would be saying what you're saying is we need to streamline this. 
Yeah, I mean, as we said during the strike, I mean, I, we fully respect the, the right of the VCTEU to take whatever job action they feel is appropriate. The challenge becomes when your job action is not targeted at your employer, it's targeted at the thousands of small businesses and tens of thousands of jobs that make up the entire distribution industry, right? And they were targeting cannabis retailers who had no other source for those products. So that doesn't seem fair and logical if you start to work it through. So uh, we may have different perspectives on it, but it's going to be a decision for government and we'll certainly be making our case on behalf of industry. Right. And in the meantime, like you said, with the backlog and getting things back on track, uh, how long then do you think people will continue to see those big gaps or gaps on the store shelves and the, the limits in place? Yeah, we're almost there. So it took about two weeks to get us to this point. And we're starting to see more and more shelves being filled. I think we're probably about two weeks away from seeing us replenish uh, from where we were before the strike and getting back to normal distribution timelines, as well as being able to remove those quantity restrictions on of three bottles per customer. Is that still having an impact on on the the businesses that when it first came in? Uh, I know we taught, we were talking to you about this, and certainly some other business owners. Is that still having mm-hmm. an impact on people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you can't purchase, you know, vodka or gin or tequila. Uh, you have a lot of places that depend on those products to make cocktails in their program, right? So I was speaking to a bar owner last night um, in Kelowna who had the exact same issue. It's like, I'm still not able to really pivot. Now, they've got some orders in, right? but every single day, they're going around to as many stores as they can, buying three bottles here, three bottles here, three bottles there, wasting hours of their time just to be able to service their customers and make some level of profit. That's the last thing anybody needed coming out of the pandemic, right? So... Those folks are still emailing me every day saying, when are we going to get back to normal service levels? And it sucks that it's still going to be a couple of weeks um, in best case scenario for us. But the first step was getting that deal in place. So luckily that happened and then the strike didn't last any longer. Uh, but, you know, you're kidding yourself if you think we're not still experiencing the financial damage from that strike. And another two weeks, I would imagine, too, uh, to get things back up to those pre-job action levels. That's not, hmm. uh, that's not what business owners want to be dealing with right now. Not at all. This is the last thing we should be dealing with, particularly because they, the strike had nothing to do with us, right? I mean, we're just kind of caught in the middle of it. The only good news is every day it does get better. Um, and our industry is filled with some pretty resilient people who managed to fight COVID. They're fighting their way through on this, but it's hindering our profitability. Uh, it's hindering our ability to move forward and recover from the pandemic. So it, it, it's frustrating. And it was the last thing anyone needed. But, you know, it's I think of this now as we are down to the, the last week or two of this, and I really hope that you know, the uh, the distribution center can get back up and running even faster. Uh, do you see a bit of a, a brighter light than this, if we, another couple of weeks, like you said, of kind of dealing with this and moving on? And also today, not a d- direct link, but with the lifting of the requirements as far as the COVID requirements for people traveling and entering Canada, uh, this will mm-hmm. very likely lead to more conventions coming back and bigger, uh, bigger tourism dollars. That's got to be welcome news to to the members of ABLE. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, the, the first thing is, you know, we are also coming into the holiday season. If this strike took place now, as opposed to in the month of December, uh, it, it's massive, right? I mean, so we're, we're hoping that we can start to recoup some of those losses over the next couple of months. Changing rules about how tourists can move and the return of conferences and events, I mean, that's actually what's gotten most people excited uh, and that's definitely going to be a big piece of our profitability over the next while. I mean, you can just imagine you know, after two years of not being able to host conferences and events and proper holiday parties, the excitement and enthusiasm in industry out there that, you know, they're, they've got thousands of workers who can't wait to go back to those. They have customers who are dying for it. So we're, we're very, very hopeful we're going to have a great holiday season. I just wish we hadn't had to endure the, the financial damage of the strike before we got there.
But you make a good point. The timing, I mean, there's never a good timing for these things, but the timing much better than what it would have been like had it been happening now or a month from now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we could have picked, we would sort of do it in, in our slow season in February or something like that. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we just wish that it hadn't had to do something like this that impacted our, our industry so deeply. It, it's, it still feels unfair and people are frustrated. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it is what it is. And, you know, the fact that everyone's back to work now, we're all trying to put this behind us, you know, union members and you know, private sector and customers, whatnot. It just takes a little while longer. And we're asking for, you know, your listeners to be patient if we don't have the particular brand that you want. We're doing everything we can to get our store shelves stocked as quickly as possible. And I absolutely know that the folks at BC Liquor Stores are doing everything they can to remove those quantity limits as soon as they can, too. All right. Uh, Jeff, just one other question, though, about the holiday season. Like you said, so many people are gearing up to the return of the parties and and what we uh, remember from before. Uh, What are your thoughts on staffing and making sure that venues will be able to welcome everybody back? Well, you're, you're tapping into what was before the strike, the single largest concern for the hospitality and tourism and accommodation industries. We have a lot of challenges to staff out there. I mean, we're having a, a conference for the liquor industry on uh, November 15th, and one of the fundamental questions people are asking already in advance of that is, where, where have all the workers gone, right? We have a significant staff shortage in our industry. We're hoping that folks will come back up for the holiday season. We always get a bit of a bump. Um, from people coming in, you know, trying to pick up some extra shifts because it's a time where they typically can make a lot of money. We are very busy. Uh, so we're just uh, keeping the same message out there that if you are looking for a job right now in British Columbia, walk into any pub, bar, liquor store, restaurant, or uh, hotel, and we'll probably get hired on the spot. <laughs> All right. Good message to put out there. Jeff, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Take care. Well, we started the show talking about the removal of COVID-19 restrictions and requirements that will be in place as of October 1st. We were talking with WestJet and the representative there saying they are very pleased that these rules are being lifted. And that also means that mandatory vaccinations, testing and quarantine of international travelers, as well as mask mandates on planes and in airports will be lifted as well. The use of the ArriveCan app will no longer be mandatory as of October 1st. So what does this mean for the cruise industry? Well, Barry Penner, who is a legal advisor to Cruise Lines International, is joining us now to talk more about this. Barry Penner, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Uh, what impact will the lifting of these restrictions and rules have on the cruise lines? It should make things easier for everyone. Uh, it'll hopefully speed up the boarding process. But more importantly, it will send a signal to international passengers that Canada is an easier place to visit uh, up until this announcement and then, I guess until the end of the month. Uh, there still are some significant things that people have to consider if they're going to book a trip to Canada. And what, would, what were the most significant things, do you think? Well, we've all heard about the ArriveCan app. And I should point out to your listeners that about 80% of the people getting on a ship in Vancouver on average, are actually from outside of Canada. So in order to get to Vancouver, they first have to enter our country, and to do so, they had to complete the ArriveCan app. But the cruise sector was unique in that we were the only industry where you had to do the ArriveCan app a second time for those international passengers. Once they came into Canada, then they had to do it another time before they could actually board the ship. And of course, then they had to provide proof of vaccination and, uh, and make sure that Uh, they were fully compliant with all their requirements. So this will make marketing of cruises out of Vancouver and 
to other destinations in Canada much easier because we're competing against countries that did not have the same requirements. And what were the rules then as far as testing, or was that being left up to individual cruise lines? Uh, Testing was a requirement, and again, unlike other industry sectors where testing requirements had been dropped long ago, as well as proof of vaccination, for example, getting on an airplane in Canada or a train, uh, those requirements were dropped, I believe, back in June. Uh, They were maintained for the cruise sector. Uh, throughout this season and uh, although it's being lifted for October 1st that's very much near the the very end of the cruise season so it won't do much to help for this year but it will assist in marketing efforts for next year as we're competing with other destinations that don't have the same amount of requirements and therefore not the same amount of cost for people that are wanting to uh, travel to Canada. Right. Okay. Um, and you mentioned this as far as kind of the, the cruise ship season coming to a close. But for people then, because there does still seem to be uh, some concern about the fact that these restrictions are going to be lifted in Canada as of October 1st. But it's uh, still kind of unclear of the United States as far as that requirement that people be vaccinated to enter the United States. What does that mean for somebody that's getting on a cruise ship, say in Vancouver, and going to Alaska if they're not vaccinated? Well, you're right. At this point, the United States has not yet signaled that they are dropping the proof of vaccination requirement if you're flying into the United States. It seems to be different at the land border, uh, but if you're flying into the United States, they continue to require proof of vaccination uh, against COVID-19. Uh, we'll see what the U.S. government does. I don't want to speculate what, how they'll respond. But for the most part, the two countries have talked about trying to synchronize or uh, uh, get their get alignment with their policies on COVID, but we haven't seen that completely. And this is another example of that where there is a slight misalignment at this point. But it's possible the U.S. will make an announcement in the next while uh, about that. But I'll leave that to them to decide. Right. So uh, I know a lot of people are hoping that they will do that. But in the meantime, if somebody is getting on a cruise ship for an Alaska cruise and getting on in Vancouver, would they not have to show still show proof of vaccination if that uh, to to get into the United States? You mean for the return? Right. Um, I would expect that would be the case as of now. Um, Again, uh, the requirement seems to be different at the land border than in the air. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll let U.S. officials speak to that. All right. Do you know, have there been issues then as far as people? Uh, you're right. And, and everything we've heard from people, too, has been that at the land boarding, it's kind of uh, land border. It's kind of hit and miss. You might get asked, but uh, many people say they've never been asked. Is that has that made it a bit easier then as far as people getting boarding the cruise ships? It's not like you'd have to show that or you're being asked that when you get on the ship. Well, one of the issues we did have this year was people returning to the United States, for example. Uh, There was a a period where proof of uh, a negative COVID-19 test was required. And so some people were surprised to find that out at the uh, airport and then missed their flight returning home um, because they didn't think that applied to them as a U.S. citizen, that the U.S. government would require them to have proof of vaccine plus proof of a negative COVID-19 test. So some people were able to re-enter the United States across the land border as an alternative to catching a flight in Vancouver. But some of those changes, the U.S. has made changes to that, uh, to the COVID-19 testing, but not yet the vaccination for people traveling by air. But back on the Canadian side, what we've seen is gradually the ships are getting fuller, which means there's more passengers 
getting off the ships and stimulating the economy in the ports where we call. Uh, for example, in the month of uh, August, we're down about 17% in terms of total revenue passengers getting on and off the ships in Vancouver compared to pre-pandemic levels in the same month in August of 2019. So it's down 17%, but it's been gradually catching up as the months have gone by this summer. Uh, at the start of the season, we're off about 30 to 40% compared to the same month in 2019. So gradually the ships are returning to uh, something closer to capacity, but it's still, as you know, indicated, down 17% compared to 2019. Even with a slightly greater number of ships calling on Vancouver, the total number of passengers has been lower than in 2019. But I expect as these uh, restrictions and requirements get removed, you'll see for next season that we'll get closer to where we were in 2019, which in turn then helps rebuild the 17,000 jobs that were supported in British Columbia by the cruise industry and 30,000 jobs across the country. Right. And and for sure, great news for people in the industry and employed by the industry. Do you know, are there measures in place as we see the restrictions lifted and we see it becoming more accessible again for people? Uh, I think we also remember some of the, the stories at the beginning of the pandemic of ships that had COVID-19 outbreaks that weren't allowed to dock in certain places. They were kind of left at sea for several days. Uh, not to suggest that we would go back to that at all, but are there measures in place if there is a COVID-19 outbreak on a ship or how ships are going to deal with that? Yeah, lots of planning's been done, obviously, and that's why Canada has acknowledged the success we've had in limiting the spread and containing COVID-19. So that's why they're removing the mandatory measures. But cruise lines will continue to adopt health and safety protocols that will evolve in response to whatever the public health situation is, whether it's COVID-19, other variants, or something else altogether. Cruise lines are always watching for what's what's happening on board the ship and will adopt different policies depending on what they're confronting. Right, because the last thing I think anybody would want when you go on a cruise and you want to enjoy it and enjoy everything about it is even the possibility, I would think, would still be concerning to people if there's a possibility of an outbreak and you're confined to your room. Sure, that's not something anybody would look forward to. I, I can say that Cruise has been very successful in mitigating uh, COVID-19. And unlike what some of the critics predicted, we were able to carry on this season in Canada without any, that I'm aware of, anyone requiring to be hospitalized as a result of COVID-19 uh, on board a cruise ship. So it's been very successful, uh, as we've learned through the last couple of years, how to respond to COVID-19. And uh, we'll continue to utilize the best available science as we go forward. Uh, I should also note we are expecting some further guidance from the Government of Canada by Transport Canada uh, later this week. Something called the Ship Safety Bulletin, we're told, will be updated. And we look forward to uh, what the suggested further guidance will be from Canada. And uh, our member lines always strive to uh, remain in compliance with whatever the Government of Canada is indicating. All right. Well, we'll be waiting for that update for sure. Have we dealt with the issue of ships being able to bypass Vancouver or not have to stop in Canada? Well, that was the issue last year. Cruise restarted in the United States last year. Uh, Canada was a bit more conservative in their approach, so cruises were not allowed to stop in Canadian ports or to depart from Canadian ports in 2021. So that prompted legislators in Alaska to... uh, demand a change to legislation that requires 
foreign-built cruise ships to, to stop basically in Canada on their way to Alaska if they're originating out in Seattle or some other U.S. port like San Francisco. Um, that was a time-limited amendment that was passed unanimously by both the Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., and then signed by President Biden. Uh, there was talk of resuming that this year, uh, amending that bill again to allow them to bypass Canada this year if we didn't allow cruise ships, but Canada did, and so that amendment uh, did not go forward again this year. Uh, but that's something that the people in Alaska and elsewhere watch very closely because what Canada does here can have a significant impact on their economy in Alaska. All right. Barry Penner, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on what's happening with the cruise industry. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Joel. It was a pleasure.